chill, an uneasy feeling that you are not alone. Don't worry, it's just a ghost. A shout out to Tia Mayhem and Tanya Venom of Stormstress for providing the incredible intro music for this podcast. Hello there, I am your host Mary Jensen. On this episode of It's Just a Ghost, I will be reading, with special permission, chapters from three different books by Thomas D'Agostino. Thomas and his wife Arlene Nicholson have penned 13 published books on ghosts and legends of New England. He has been a paranormal researcher investigator for 37 years with over 1,200 investigations to his credit in both the public and private sector. He is an experienced public speaker with a passion for sharing his experiences and research of the legends, ghosts, and folklore of New England. His books have prompted several PBS series, documentaries, and television shows in which he has appeared. His books are available to purchase on Amazon. Much more information on Tom and his work can be found at TomDagostino.com. That's T-O-M-D-A-G-O-S-T-I-N-O.com. These first two stories, Colt State Park and Narragansett, Rhode Island, they're both from the book called Haunted Rhode Island by Thomas D'Agostino. Copyright 2006. This one is about Colt State Park. Colt State Park is known as the gem of Rhode Island parks. It was once a vast farm owned by Samuel Pomeroy Colt, who was born on January 10, 1853. His father was the brother of Samuel Colt, who was the maker of the revolver that won the West. Samuel Pomeroy Colt founded the Industrial Trust Company Bank in 1887 and later went on to be chairman of the board of the United States Rubber Company. His wealth enabled him to buy three adjacent farms overlooking the Narragansett Bay and combine them with a system of roads. These are the trails and roads that make up the park's scenic walkways and bike paths today. Buster Crab, a famous movie actor of Tarzan films, once played on the farm, as his father was the first superintendent of the land. Samuel Colt died on August 13, 1921, from a stroke, and the land stayed in the family as per his will until August 3, 1965, when the state purchased it for public use. The great barn that housed Colt's prize-winning herd is now the park office. A stable hand is said to have died in that barn and now stays behind, turning on lights that the staff is sure they shut off. He also opens doors that were supposedly locked by staff members upon leaving the building. Many staff members have secured the building for a few minutes to check on the park. They have come back to the office a few moments later to find the doors completely open with no foul play or damage to the building. Interim park manager Walter Rocha claims he has seen nothing unusual in his short stay there, but other workers claim to have seen the frightening ghosts of two little girls walking along the path near the beach. They vanished into thin air each time they were approached. The airy sound of a little girl giggling is also heard permeating the woods nearby. Park workers are not the only living people to see these unnerving sights. 
Tourists shaken with fear have reported to many a park ranger of their encounters with the ghostly children. It is known that two little girls drowned off the point near the beach in the 1970s. Take a tour or a swim at the point. Who knows what you might bump into on a grassy path overlooking the still but not silent Colt State Park. Near Agansett, Rhode Island, Old Wedderbourne Mansion. Jephath Wedderborn was a successful sea captain who lived in a four-story mansion by the shores of the Narragansett Bay. His only companion, when at home, was his servant, Huldy Cradock, who cared for him in his immense home when the captain was away at sea. One day, the captain returned to his mansion from a trip overseas with a new bride by the name of Donna Mercedes. The local residents often saw the petite young Spanish woman in her black lace mantilla dress with a tortoiseshell comb for her hair staring out of the windows of the manor which an acute expression of sorrow on her face it must have been terribly lonely for a girl who did not speak english and was married to a possessive jealous man of the sea good lady craddock tried to accommodate her but she missed her family back in the homeland and wanted desperately to return there when Captain Wetterman returned from a journey, it is said that he agreed to sail his bride back to her own country, and all would go back to the way it was, once was. Two years later, he returned from the long voyage, telling all the townsfolks that she was again living with her family. This would have been the end of the story, except people of the town began to see the diminutive figure of a woman pacing to and fro in the windows of the great hall, and heard sobbing that they had come to recognize as that of Donna Mercedes herself. Even after the death of Jephith Wedderburn, the new owners of the house heard the sobbing of a woman and witnessed her apparition on the third floor overlooking the ocean. Every new family in turn would live with the mournful ghost of Donna Mercedes until 1925, when renovations were being done in the house. As they tore up the hearthstone in the library, they noticed a small wooden coffin. When they pried it up, to their astonishment, they found the skeleton of a woman in a tattered and rotted black lace mantilla. At the top of her skull was a great tortoiseshell comb. Some say she was killed by her husband, who could not stand to let her go, while others believe she was murdered by the housekeeper, who may have fallen for the sea captain herself, and wanted her out of the way. When he found out, they buried her to avoid any confrontation with the law. The truth went to the grave many years ago. Apparently so did the house. The mansion was supposedly located on Front Street in Narragansett. No such road exists in the state maps. I have found the ruins of the mansion off of Ocean Drive. Could Ocean Drive have once been called Front Street? No historical records indicate either way. If you hear cries coming from the remains of an old mansion on a moonlit night, you may be in the right place. Whether it is the sobbing of Donna Mercedes or not, let's let you, the listener, decide. This next story about the Ice House in Burlington, Vermont, is from the book Haunted Vermont by Thomas D'Agostino and Arlene Nicholson, copyright 2001. Burlington, Vermont, the Ice House. 
Burlington is located in the northwestern tip of the state, along the famed Lake Champlain, home of the Champ, the lake's infamous sea creature. It is also home for many land-bound oddities and eerie places. One such place is called the Ice House, a noted restaurant and office building complex located along the shore of Lake Champlain in the downtown area. Arlene's daughter Mandy and her fiancé Justin had removed to Burlington due to her work with a company she had been employed with for many years. Being a chef, Justin sought employment at restaurants in the area and was given a job at the Ice House restaurant. It wasn't very long before he had many a tale to relate to me. One day, as Justin was in the kitchen cleaning up, he spied someone out of the corner of his eye. A bit startled and more curious, turned around and his eyes transfixed upon a semi-transparent apparition of a lady swinging a bell. He immediately noticed that the bell made no noise whatsoever. At that point, he knew he was staring at an image from another place in time. As he approached the figure, it vanished as silently as it had come. The wrath has been seen numerous times by other employees as well. A cook who has been there for many years is so accustomed to the haunted place that it seems lonely to him without something happening regularly. The staff on duty has often heard the distinct sound of ice blocks being dragged across the floor. The grinding sound becomes an eerie echo in their ears until the ghostly labor has ended and silence once again prevails. The original structure served as a storage facility for the large blocks of ice cut from the lake. It is told that the great blocks of ice sliding or falling accidentally crushed many laborers of the ice house. Some of them were badly maimed, while others died. It is no wonder the place harbors residual energy in the form of spirits, not ready to leave the place where they spent their possible final eternity internal moments. Objects that are put down in obvious places tend to disappear, only to be later discovered hidden in strange nooks of the kitchen and basement. The long maze of corridors, with their many intersections on the first floor, where the kitchen is located, often becomes a haven for apparitions. Many times, Justin has seen someone near the crossing of the corridors, only to stop and look again. This time, they are not there. The lengths of the path passageways would not permit anyone enough time to hide from plain sight. The history of the structure is born of tragedy. John Winnan, a Burlington shipbuilder, erected his home on the site in 1808. That year, he began construction of Lake Champlain's first steamboat. In 1868, fire claimed the home, but it was soon decided that the location was ideal for holding ice from the lake. An immense ice house was soon rebuilt from the foundation to serve the region of the lake. Before the days of the electric refrigerator, blocks of ice were used to keep perishable foods cold in the warmer months. Men with special cutting tools and saws would venture out onto the frozen lakes and rivers and cut into the ice into neat blocks. They would then haul the blocks of the ice on horse-drawn carriers to the specifically insulated ice houses where they would be stacked for later use. 
Ice houses were still in use well into the 20th century, until the electric and glass refrigerators became more popular and easier to obtain. In some places, ice houses still play an important role in the preserving of perishable goods. Milk trucks once not only used the ice to keep the dairy products cold while on delivery routes, they also supplied some of the homes with ice in the area. I grew up in, in as late as the 1970s. The massive three-story building supplied ice year-round to the residents of Burlington for many generations with the chunks cut from Lake Champlain. It remained in operation well into the 20th century before being converted into a retail prop property. The massive foot square beams used to support the heavy ice still adorn the building as well as some entities from the past. So if you are in the area of Battery and King Streets in Burlington, Vermont, be sure to stop by. If you feel a, a, a cold, sudden chill while you're there, you'll know that it is not the ice doing its bid. In 2016, after 40 years of being mainstay in Burlington's vibrant restaurant scene, the Ice House restaurant permanently closed its doors. The building now houses several small businesses. I've contacted a few of the owners of the businesses in the building. Um, I haven't got response from any of them except for one, and she says that she has not seen anything happen there. This one about Mystic Seaport, Connecticut is from the book Guide to Haunted New England by Thomas D'Agostino, copyright 2019. Mystic Seaport, Connecticut, a ghost for every occasion. Mystic, Connecticut is truly a magical place, hence the name. Actually, the name is derived from the Mohegan, Montauk, Narragansett term, Missy Tuck, which means large river driven into waves by wind or tide. Robert Burroughs and George Dennison, the first English settlers to the area, arrived about 1654. Dennison settled on the east side of the river, while Burroughs found his home on the west side. It was not until 1665, after an influx of such noted families as William, Gallup, and Mason, all on the east side, Fish and Packer, both on the west side, and the general sentient in Hartford decided the name Mystic for the colony. The Pequos, of course, had already given the area that name. Today it is known as Old Mystic. Mystic is a historic parcel of land that lies within the towns of Groton and Stonington. It has no recognized formal governing body, yet it holds its own as a place of wonder and imagination. The 2000 census recorded 4,100 people residing in the village, separated by the Mystic Bridge. Some of the destinations in this chapter lie within the perimeter of the aforementioned towns, just outside Mystic's outskirts. The town is filled with antique shops, eclectic wares, and a broad variety of restaurants. It is home to Mystic Pizza, where scenes from the famous 1988 movie of the same name were filmed. Mystic Aquarium and Mystic Seaport, the largest maritime museums in the world, with the latest wooden whaling ships in existence, the Charles Morgan lays anchor. Steven Spielberg used Mystic Seaport in some of the scenes for the 1997 movie Amistad. 
The Hardy Boys, book number 47, The Whale Tattoo, 1968, takes the reader into Mystic Seaport, where Frank Hardy is almost done in by a villain while aboard the Charles Morgan. Mystic Seaport also happens to be where the mystery is solved. But it did not take two sleuthing teens to bring the ghost of Mystic to life. Many who have long since turned to dust in the physical sense still hold Tennessee in one of the most interesting tourist spots in the East. Staying at the haunted bed and breakfast in Mystic is easier than one might think. Restaurants and even tourist attractions have more to offer than meets the eye. Visiting the Ghosts Our first destination is the ever-famous Mystic Seaport Museum of America in the Sea. There are several ghosts that seem to have made harbor here. No one knows who the spirits really are, but they do like to make an appearance from time to time. Mystic Seaport is the largest museum of maritime history in the world. Three mystic residents, industrialist Edward F. Bradley, Dr. Charles K. Stillman, and attorney Carl C. Cutler, founded the Marine Historical Association on December 29, 1929. It was officially renamed Mystic Seaport in 1978. Not only does it consist of a whole village along the edge of the Mystic River, but it also boasts a few ships of bygone eras, including the Charles Morgan. Guests can see how rope was made, how coopers and the blacksmith toiled at their trades, and how old-timers' stores really fashioned their interiors with the wares of the day. There is also a tavern and some homes for the public to visitation. For more adventurous, there are ships to wander through. A walkthrough reveals how sailors and fishermen really lived aboard these vessels. Some men would endure such conditions for up to five years. It is no wonder that a few may still be wandering the decks of the Charles Morgan. Ethereal voices also permeate the area of the Falcastle as to the landlubbers where the crew slumbered after a hard day's work. Staff members have checked out the area, thinking perhaps a stray sightseer had remained on board after closing, only to find that there were the only ones on the ship, at least the only physical beings aboard the vessel. There are a couple of staff members who will not venture onto the boat alone. They attest to having heard the voices and have even been touched by an unseen entity while being below deck. A few have heard the steady thump of what might be someone walking below deck. When they went to investigate, the sound trailed off. Ships, of course, will creak with the rolling of the tide, but the Morgan is in a low, calm water. Whether you see a ghost, the Charles Morgan is a thrill to board and tour. And once you have shed your sea legs for the dry dock, head over to the country variety store, where there is a chance of greeting sharpers from the other side. Dane, one of the more distinguished staff members at the museum, experienced what appeared to be an intense paranormal occurrence. Dane related his encounter. I was at the register with a box of items when I suddenly saw a woman with three children walking down one of the aisles. I never heard them come in. The door is heavy and makes plenty of noise when opened. They were dressed in modern attire, so I never gave it a second thought. I turned quickly to place some items from the box onto the countertop, then promptly turned toward the family to see if they needed help. But the place was suddenly empty. 
They were there, and then they were gone. The strangest thing about the incident is that the heavy wooden door slammed when opened and closed. Yet I never heard the woman and children come or go. The building is small, and there is no way they could have entered or left without being noticed. But they did. I was bewildered all day while contemplating what I had just witnessed. The, the variety store is not the only place where you can purchase a gift and rub elbows with a revenant from the past. The museum shop at the entrance of the seaport was once a private home. A woman recently came into the store and told the staff that her grandmother was born in that building. The museum purchased the building and renovated it into the shop seen today by the visitors. The center staircase, upstairs rooms, and outer shell remain mostly as they were a century ago. Whoever still resides within the store is not happy with a few shelves towards the rear near the staircase. Most of the staff members and customers have witnessed the glassware on those rear shelves suddenly taken on wings and flying to the middle of the store. In some cases, it appeared as if an invisible arm was swiping at a row of merchandise off the shelf at once. Dane and Alyssa are among the staff members who have witnessed the phantom vandal. You can actually see the items fall from the shelf in succession, one after another, Alyssa said. The phenomena included sudden cold spots and the feeling of being watched while in that area. Perhaps the ghosts are angry that their former living room is now cluttered. Conceivably, there may have been a rocking chair there or a desk where leisure time meant a lot to whoever is causing this mess. No one is certain what it is, but there is something going on in that corner. Arlene and I tried a few EVPs, but it was a bit noisy that day as customers were mulling around. Some quiet interest in our search for the spirit's identity. Arlene is a professional dowser. No one knows how the rods work, but they do. Water company trucks carry dowsing rods and teach each employee how to use them. You do not need to be sensitive or psychic. The rods work using the person holding them as an agent of their, of their bidding. Arlene's inquiries, along with those of a few other interested onlookers, returned some positive answers, but she could not get a name. It could be that the mischievous spirits wants to remain anonymous. There may be other ghosts in the building that lie within the museum. The Spouta Tavern is known for some strange occurrences that have yet to be explained. Footsteps heard upstairs or in the tap room when it is supposed to be empty and the lights working on their own. A busy seaport turned museum can hold many reasons for these occurrences, either from this side of the veil or the other. Who are the ghosts of Mystic Seaport? Again, no one knows. That is just a small part of the alluring charm that the Seaport Museum possesses. It is a magic, magnificent historical place where one can spend a lot of time. Some have spent an eternity. More spirits to shop with. Another locality of lofty phantom interest is the Emporium on 15 Water Street. The store is an incredible eclectic mix of gifts and galleries. Cindy, who manages the store, has been there for 19 years. She likes to refer to the merchandise as off-color. 
Cindy has also lived on the fourth floor above the store for 17 years. Originally, the building served as a post office during the Civil War. Many letters and notices of soldiers coming home sent a rush of relief to family members. Unfortunately, bad news also arrived at the edifice of those who gave their lives for the cause. One can only imagine the sadness or grief that has imprinted itself into the walls. Perhaps that is why there are a few spirits lingering long after their time on earth has ended. Maybe they are, as Cindy suggests, family members still waiting for news of their loved ones. No one is sure, but there seems to be energy that remains alive and well in the Emporium. One spirit is that of a boy of about 12. He predominantly likes to play tricks on the girls who work there. The basement is where the ch children's toys are sold. It seems a fitting place for a child to eternally frolic among the vast wonderland of amusement. Becky, the assistant manager, has had her share of incidents, but has since told the ethereal residents that she would rather be left alone. I just shout, don't freak me out today, and they don't bother me anymore, she said. One co-worker constantly feels the presence around her. The staff members are not the only people who experience the ghosts of the Emporium. Customers have been touched to have seen the little boy ghost as well. Cindy's apartment is also a center of activity. No clock will work when placed in her kitchen, and there is a presence felt just outside the room. She also heard footsteps walking from the kitchen into the living room. Her son was raised in the building. He is no stranger, no stranger to the energy that roams the premises. Every so often, they both feel a dis discerning force at one door that leads from the apartment to the gallery. They move very quickly when having to walk by that particular spot. You can feel it, and it is kind of an agitated energy. It makes us pass by that area very quickly. Or avoid it altogether, Cindy said. If she goes away for the weekend, items seem to take on wings and fly off shelves. It is as if the spirits have separation anxiety and do not want her to leave them alone. Once, when she was going through a less than pleasant time, something touched her hand as if to tell her that everything was going to be all right. The energy here is not evil or anything like that. It just lives in the building, Cindy said. Spirits want to feel comfortable in the place where they linger, so it is unlikely that they will be malevolent. Would you want to live somewhere that you didn't like? Robert Bankle and Evan Nichol Nichols are the owners of the Emporium. They related a story to me and Arlene about the previous owner. A man named Paul had bought the place, and he started painting and fixing it up. One day he painted himself into a corner and called to one of his helpers to open a window and bring a ladder so he could exit from there. He turned around quickly to see if anyone was within earshot. When he turned back, the freshly painted floor had a mysterious set of footsteps running across it. The Emporium is a stop that would be worthy of your time, even if you were not even if it were not haunted, but its resident spirits just make it a little more enticing to visit.
This next one on the public house is from the book Haunted Massachusetts by Thomas D'Agostino, copyright 2007. Sturbridge, Massachusetts, the public house. Sturbridge, Massachusetts sits just west of Worcester and 67 miles west of Boston, according to an old milestone placed in the town by Benjamin Franklin in 1754, when he was deputy postmaster of the colonies. It is a typical New England town, full of rich history, antique shops, friendly people, and, of course, ghosts. One place that holds a major role in the history and haunting of Sturbridge is the Public House Restaurant and Inn. Colonel Ebenezer Crafts built the Public House in 1771, across from the town common. Colonel Crafts himself trained his militia for the upcoming Revolutionary War on the Common and gave them provisions from his famous inn. During the War of 1812, the inn saw much prosperity due to the British embargo. All commerce had to be carted by land from New York to Boston, and the little town of Sturbridge fell right in between the two major cities. Ebenezer Crafts made sure every guest of the inn was treated with the same respect that he would be given to the highest of royalty. Every night he would visit each room, making sure his patrons were comfortable and well supplied with the proper linens and warmth. General Lafayette and his son George Washington Lafayette once paid a visit to the inn and spoke at the common. It is said that the 3,000 people from all around crammed into the grassy public ground to hear his speech. Later, he partook in some spirits in the tap room, then proceeded on his tour of the young country. The public house of today has not changed much since those first years of its existence. Innkeeper and general manager Michael Glick has seen to it that all guests are treated as magnificently as they were in Colonel Kraft's tenure. The facility has expanded by adding a, mo a motor lodge in the old farm field behind the original building and a banquet hall nearby. But other than that, hospitality is still colonial, friendly, and the spirits of the house are quite active to this day. In rooms four and eight, guests have been awakened by footsteps when there were no one there to create them. Some have actually felt the bed being pushed down as if someone was sitting on the edge of it. One couple saw what they thought was a man in, in colonial garb standing near the door of their room. The figure then turned and vanished into thin air. Could it be the ghost of Ebenezer Crafts still making sure the guests of the inn were comfortable and satisfied? Other reports are that of children laughing and running in the empty halls. Witnesses have heard the sounds from behind them, but when they look back, no one is there. Bob, a longtime employee of the tavern in the inn public house, had a few stories to share. Although he had not went, witnessed anything too strange, he did tell my wife and I of an account one time when a coffin was being transported over land by horse-drawn hearse. In those days, there were no airplanes, so when someone had to be brought back to their home for burial, it would have to be transported the coffin by carriage, he narrated. The trip was a long one, and the undertakers had to stop for the night at the end. Fearing harm to the deceased, if the coffin was left unattended, they were given permission to bring the casket in the tavern and set it by the fire. 
One can imagine the shock of walking into the tap room in the middle of the night and coming up on a coffin by the fireplace. Some of the employees say that the incident may have released a spirit or two into the building. Another longtime employee named Elizabeth states that she has heard voices in the main dining room while she was in there alone. She has also witnessed the chandeliers moving and the candles flickering when there was no air conditioning on or any other form of breeze in the room. She is not alone in witnessing these ghostly happenings. Crafts Hall was built in the 1950s but seems to harbor some lost entities of the past as well. Waitresses have heard voices and footsteps echoing through the otherwise empty reception area while cleaning up or preparing for a function. The voices are audible but not but unrecognizable. No one wants to be alone in that particular room because of the phenomena that takes place there. There's a very old burial ground next to the public house where the first settlers of Sturbridge in 1730 are interred. Perhaps some of them have wandered into the inn and its other buildings looking for a new eternal home. Those who stay for dinner might get a brush with the paranormal as well. Objects tend to move on their own volition and candles will snuff themselves out with no breeze to blow at them. Guests feel no harm or a treat or threat while in the facility, either for dinner or a drink or an overnight stay. They feel it adds to the charm of the typical New England Inn and Tavern. The tavern itself is reminiscent of the time when it first graced the land across from the common. My wife Arlene and I have visited the public house on a number of occasions and spoke with a lot of the staff who had had similar accounts to share. Although we have not experienced anything unusual during our unfortunately brief stays at the inn, we still feel it is an experience in itself to soak in the atmosphere of this captivating historical landmark. The last time we visited, Bob had a lighter story to tell us. A long time ago, I was closing up the tavern. When I looked up at the stairs, I saw what looked like this white sheet floating down from the top of the staircase. I had more hair in those days than I did and it stood up on end, he recalled. I was spooked out of my wits, but then saw that it was only a guest who was in his white nightshirt sleepwalking. It nearly took ten years of me off of me, he said, laughing. Living spooks or otherwise, many believe that the public house should be investigated for its paranormal activity. The building has been there for over 235 years. The ghosts are probably almost as old. Why bother them now? And since writing this book, Tom D'Agostino and his wife, Arlene Nicholson, have done several investigations at the public house over the last few years. And in my pilot episode of It's Just a Ghost, you can hear an interview that I did with Tom and Arlene. Um, and also on my second episode, I talk about my experience at the public house with a spirit. Um, when I attended one of their investigations. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, um, I suggest that you do. <laughs> Thanks for listening. This last story is about the Lizzie Borden House in Fall River, Massachusetts. Read from the book Haunted Massachusetts by Thomas D'Agostino. Copyright 2007. 
The Ghosts of the Borden House. The ghosts of the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast are always on duty. New owners Leanne Wilbur and Donald Woods will vouch for their presence. I am not going to bore you with the same old rehash of the case, but I can tell you some interesting insights and unnerving ghost stories related to me from the present owners, as well as Edward Tebow, who plays Andrew Borden during the tours and reenactments. My wife and I toured the Borden home in May of 2004. At that time, ownership was just changing over from Ron Evans and Martha McChen, whose family had owned the house since 1948, to Leanne Wilbur and Donald Woods. Not only did all parties mentioned have some stories to tell, but we experienced a few chilling moments ourselves during our visit to one of the most famous houses in America. Everyone knows the story of how Lizzie was arrested for the August 4, 1892 murders of Andrew and Abby Borden, only to be acquitted in June of 1893 after spending 10 months in a Taunton jail. Shortly after the trial, Lizzie and her sister Emma moved to the more fashionable section of Fall River and called their new home Maplecroft. The Borden house was rented out and much of the furniture dispersed to friends and charity. The house was sold off in 1918. During this time, Lizzie officially changed her name to Lizbeth and took on many unexpected friends. Her own society shunned her after the trial, but traveling performers and the like would gladly take up residence in the stately home. Such company did not please Emma. They had a falling out and Emma moved off to New Hampshire in 1904. They would never speak to each other again. Lizzie died in 1927 at the age of 66. Emma passed away nine days later at the age of 76 in Newmarket, New Hampshire. The whole family, including Lizzie's mother and Andrew's first wife, Sarah, and their oldest sister, Alice, who died at a young age, are buried in the Borden plot at the Oak Grove Cemetery, not far from the house. How is the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast haunted? Let's start with previous owner, Martha McGinn. During the tour, we were told that on many occasions, lights would turn on and off by themselves. Even when Martha was in the room and the switch was in plain view, the ghosts would do their bidding. They would often hear doors upstairs swing open and close, as if there was still someone in the house, reliving moments of the long dead past. Footsteps usually accompanied at the creaking of the doors, yet the owners and staff knew that there was no one, no living entity on the second or third floors. Witnesses and ghosts of the bed and breakfast have seen the ghostly figures of a woman in the basement. Many think it is Lizzie externally roaming the cellar, possibly hiding evidence to the horrific crime. Voices from another time and dimension have been heard permeating the barrier of the living and echoing from out of nowhere in the rooms. As if the phantom voices are not enough, guests have heard the sounds of a cat in the rooms. Manager Michelle Corvello has heard the phantom feline on the third floor that once was bedquarters to Bridget Sullivan, the Borden's maid, who they referred to as Maggie. An eerie note is that Abby Borden once found a decapitated cat in the basement of the house. Where it came from has always remained a mystery. Edward Tebow, night manager, tour guide, and actor who portrays Andrew Borden was our host for the day. His wife had a few memorable encounters with the Borden ghosts. 
One time she was tidying up the master bedroom when a perfume bottle flew off the bureau and hit the wall across the room. On another occasion, a pillow rose off the bed and flipped to the floor as if some invisible hand had perpetuated its movement. As we strolled from room to room, Mr. Tebow, Tebow's voice rang with precise accounts of the history and the facts relating to the house. The other members of the tour were students and teachers of the William Johnson Middle School in Colchester, Connecticut. They all listened with great intent to the Borden legacy that has mystified researchers for over 100 years. Tebow's candor was quite inviting. The demeanor of the house still glowed with the incandescent shades of the macabre. As we wandered about the chambers, my recorder whirled to life, hoping to catch a voice of the past. We would not be disappointed. Later, when I played the tape back, we could distinctly hear a voice in the midst of Edward's lecture on the third floor in Maggie's room. It was of heavy Gaelic that was barely understandable, yet completely audible. It sounded as if someone was screaming, Come quick, ma'am, in a horrified shriek. The recording was not the only manifestation waiting for us that day. Arlene and I lagged behind to take pictures and recordings. We found ourselves far removed from the rest of the tour that had already descended the staircase to the first floor. As we came down the stairs to the first floor hallway, we witnessed a shadow of what appeared to be a woman in a bonnet and gown move across the wall in the hall. The shadow moved silently and steadily along the wall. We were taken aback as we were the only people in view of each other on the stairs. The rest of the party was around the corner in another room. The apparition moved out of sight down the small hall and vanished. We came into the kitchen with a start. Arlene had tried to capture the apparition on film, but was too slow getting her camera prepared after securing it to descend the steep staircase. Our unexpected sighting sent the whole party back into the hall in a frenzy that for a moment disrupted the tour, but soon all was calm and our guide had us back in the kitchen. A little shaken and a lot more interesting, interested in anything he had to say about the house. The image still plays over and over in my memory as one would not be so apt to ever forget such an experience in a place of reputed history such as a Borden house. Those who reside in the house stated to us that such sightings are a common occurrence, and after a few times they become used to the ghosts of the manor. Present owner Leanne Wilbur has seen the spirits move about the rooms out of the corner of her eye on numerous occasions. She even felt a cold finger run down the middle of her back. And when she whirled around to see who the prankster was, she was shocked to see that no one was behind her. People have reported cold spots or the feeling of being watched while in some of the upstairs rooms. Her partner, Donald Woods, takes a skeptical side of the whole Borden thing. He attributes the sightings and other phenomenon to act active imaginations in a house that is so famous and ripe for the mind's eye to create scenarios of grim report. They have photographs of what appears to be misty fig figures in the living room where Angel was murdered that neither of them can explain. As for what really happened at 92 Second Street on the morning of August 4th, 1892, perhaps one day we will get something on film. No one alive has the real answer. Only the dead know, and they are not ready to reveal the truth. 
A tour of the house is a must, and to say, stay at night is definitely worth the experience. Who knows, you might get to see a ghostly reenactment of the grisly crime committed so long ago. One thing is for certain, if you do witness something most unearthly in the house, do not hesitate to tell about it. There is not one person there who will think you are whacked. In a very interesting epilogue to the haunting of the board and bed and breakfast, I would like to put forth a few bits of information that have been acquired in recent years regarding the murders. There is a report that a nurse named Ruby Cameron was taking care of Lizzie in her later years. Lizzie divulged to her upon her deathbed that she had a boyfriend that her father forbid her to have contact with. On that fateful morning, it was he who killed Abby, then waited in the closet for Andrew to get home. When he laid down to rest, the boyfriend sent Lizzie out to the barn as to not be witness to the grotesque endeavor. He then killed Andrew as well. There are no records of knowledge of Lizzie ever having a boyfriend or lover. Even Emma was never known to have a suitor. Another account states that a farmhand who was in love with Lizzie was asked on the morning of the murders to dispose of a few items for her. He had been paid by Mr. Bourne to clean the yard and was on his way to the dump with the wheelbarrow in hand and when he appeared at the back door with a rag and hatchet. After wiping the hatchet clean, she threw the rag amidst the rubble in the barrow, then emerged with a package wrapped in paper and tied tightly. He walked, to his low, he walked his load to the dump and then got a drink on the way back. And when he returned, he noticed a commotion around the house and inquired only to find out that Mr. and Mrs. Borden had been murdered. He began to put two and two together and realized he may have disposed of some key evidence and that Lizzie might have been responsible for the act. He rushed back to the dump, but it was too late. Several ox carts had dropped large loads of garbage, rendering it almost impossible to ever uncover his small load of refuse. He saw it as a sign that maybe he should not get involved. His conscience eventually got the best of him, and he moved away from Fall River, never to be heard from except for his accounts of that day. This is the account that Edward Thibault gave to us after the tour. It seems like a very plausible possibility. The night before the murders, Andrew's brother-in-law from his first marriage, John Moore, stayed in the room where Abby was found. That morning, he supposedly left on the trolley to visit friends. Shortly after the bodies were discovered, he returned. The first thing he witnessed doing was picking a pear, a pear from the Borden trees and eating it. He never inquired about the big ordeal. And when questioned on his whereabouts, he stated that he was visiting friends and he even gave the police the badge number of the conductor that was on the train at the time. Why would someone memorize a badge number unless it would be of value later? Did John Morse and Lizzie have a plan to split the, split the family fortune? Was Lizzie ever involved at all? I hope you enjoyed this episode of It's Just a Ghost. This episode's title was Haunts Around New England. Hello there. I just have a little add-on that I'm putting on to all of the old episodes. We have a new website address. It is it's just a ghostpodcast.com. And we also have a new email address, and that is it's just a ghostpodcast at yahoo.com. So if you heard a different email 
or website address in this episode. Please ignore that and use the new one. Again, the email is it's just a ghost podcast at yahoo.com and the website is it's just a ghost podcast.com. Thank you so much. As always, please email us your paranormal experiences to it's just a ghost podcast at yahoo.com and we will read them on an upcoming episode. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. You can help us grow and get our name out there by telling your friends about us, and we would be thrilled if you would leave us five stars. This helps people find us out there in the sea of podcasts. It's all free, so why not, right? You can follow us on Facebook at It's Just a Ghost Podcast and on Twitter at It's Just a Ghost 2. That's the number two. And also on Instagram at It's Just a Ghost Podcast. Remember, ghosts are people too. Until next time.